This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley, the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chat. This is our first of the year 2020, so our topic today is keeping your eyes healthy in the new year. We have a, Today's guest is new to the Bright Focus Chats. It's Dr. Yasha Modi. He's an assistant professor at the ophthalmology department at NYU Langone Health in New York City, and he's also a surgeon at Tisch Hospital in New York City. If you're new to the Bright Focus Chats, welcome and thank you. So once a month, we have an opportunity to spend about 30 or 40 minutes with a leading expert on vision disease and eye health. So I'd like to, uh, to turn to a, a first-time guest, guest at Bright Focus, uh, Dr. Yasha Modi. So um, welcome, and would you like to just tell us a little bit about what you do at NYU Langone Health? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on the chat. Uh, you, you said it perfectly. I'm a retina specialist at New York University. I also do retina surgery and uveitis, which is a inflammation of the eye. And I've been working at NYU for about four years. Prior to that, I was at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, it's a really great institution. And I, I get to work with some amazing colleagues, uh, you know, taking care of some very difficult retina patients. How did you end up uh, working in vision health? Well, you know, that's a great question. And uh, frequently in, in medical school, we don't really have the opportunity uh, to see a lot of ophthalmology and vision health uh, care. Uh, I come from a long lineage of ophthalmologists. So actually, believe it or not, I'm a sixth generation ophthalmologist. Uh, so it's been, in my, it's been in my family for quite some time. Uh, and then I, I started studying it more in, in medical school and really liked it. And specifically, I like a lot of uh, the disease states of retina, which is what ultimately brought me to be a retina surgeon. That's great. Sixth generation. That's that's amazing. And uh, you know, so the, the goal of the Bright Focus chat chats are to to educate our patients on the latest um, developments and in, in research uh, in the in the field. And and I know there's a new AMD medicine that's on the market. Would you uh, be able to tell us you know, a little bit about what it is and how it works? Absolutely. So there, we have a few different drugs currently available for the treatment of the wet form of macular degeneration or the exudative form of macular degeneration. And the newest uh, one to the market is a medication called brolicizumab, and the trade name is called Bayview. This is made by Novartis. It got FDA approval at the end of 2019, and it now has its own drug code, uh, which means that this can be uh, appropriately billed through insurance like Medicare and private insurances and allows us the opportunity to treat patients with macular degeneration with another drug that may have efficacy. And this was a medication that actually is very, very similar to the other ones. So the other medications are a medication called Aflipercept or Ilea and Ranibizumab and Lucentis. And then there's an off-label use uh, called Avastin or Bevacizumab. So we have four different drugs available to us now. And this particular drug, all of them actually work by blocking one molecule called VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. And this is the driving force for producing the wet form of macular degeneration. And this, this drug 
sort of tries to stop that progression to allow the retina to eventually dry for fluid to be uh, diminished and to lower the likelihood of bleeding. So, and every time we have a new drug on the market, it increases the opportunity for us to effectively treat patients with wet macular degeneration. Well, that's great. And, and you said it, it's, uh, it's now covered by Medicare and, and private insurance? That's right. So when a drug gets FDA approval, oftentimes the logistics of ordering the medication and getting it delivered to the clinic and getting reimbursed for the medication oftentimes lags behind. And so there's something called a J code, which essentially means that there's a definitive way to bill for the medication. And so now doctors have only recently had the opportunity to actually start implementing this drug into their clinical practices. It's good. Well, it's good. It's nice to know that that's uh, you know seems to be uh, settled for the the future of patient you know convenience of patients. And you, know, you mentioned your uh, long lineage in 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 ophthalmology. Do you have a sense of is our understanding scientifically or our treatment medically of AMD has that changed over the last five or ten years or as long as you know you've been in practice or well, things uh, better or different now? Yeah. Certainly, I think every this is a incremental addition to the armamentarium that we use to treat macular degeneration. But if we take a more global perspective, 10 years or even 20 years, the difference between 20 years and 10 years has been just absolutely tremendous, where patients 20 years ago with wet macular degeneration frequently ended up very, very quickly losing all of their central vision. And the only forms available to us were really laser treatments back prior to really the early 2000s. And then the first anti-VEGF medications, the off-label use of Avastin and the on-label use of Lucentis, really revolutionized our entire understanding and treatment of the wet form of macular degeneration. And we're starting to realize that, uh, you know, first of all, colloquially, we discuss macular degeneration as the wet form, where we have uh, fluid accumulating under the retina or in the retina and bleeding, and then the dry form of the macular degeneration where we have atrophy or loss of tissue. And so while we're making great strides in the wet form of the macular degeneration, the only treatment we have currently for the dry form of the macular degeneration is really vitamins, which slow the progression to the wet form of the macular degeneration. So certainly this is an incredible time for vision research and macular degeneration. There are a lot of very, very fascinating trials that are going on. And uh, I think that the next 10 to 20 years is gonna be just as interesting as the prior 10 to 20 years. Well, great, that's exciting. We've gotten several questions uh, submitted in advance and, and already during today's chat about um, genetics. Um, so just you know, kind of Starting off, that you know, you, you hear uh, products advertised on TV um, you know, about about genetic testing and diseases. Is is that applicable for uh, for macular degeneration? Well, well, first let's just uh, address the question: Is there a genetic predisposition to developing age-related macular degeneration? And the answer to that is we certainly think so. But it's not so much inherited in the traditional sense that if you have macular degeneration, your child has a 50% likelihood or a 25% likelihood of developing it. The genetics are actually much, much more complex than this. And there are certain genetic mutations that have been associated 
to a higher likelihood of developing macular degeneration. Remember, there's a difference between association and causation, where in this case, we're not 100% certain that if you were to have these genetic mutations, that you're 100% likely to develop macular degeneration. And given this uncertainty, given the fact that currently we don't change our treatment paradigm from genetic testing, there is no sort of there's no clinical reason at this point in time to genetically test for age-related macular degeneration. I frequently have patients who will take a 23andMe test, uh, which are these uh, sort of home genetic tests that we take, and they also look for the genetic loci or the genetic areas that are suggestive of macular degeneration, and they'll come to me with these results, and there's no way for us in the current state of affairs to predict their likelihood of developing macular degeneration. No, it's good to know because, and then you know, obviously our our audience they worry about the you know their kids and their grandkids uh, you know future. Uh, we've got a question say about juvenile macular degeneration. Is there any, you know, I guess first of all, what is that, and is that something that would um, carry over uh, into somebody's uh, uh, older years? Certainly. So, so if we think about. Um, Features in the retina that look like macular degeneration but developed prior to 50 years of age, where certainly there are a host of other possibilities, and more likely than not, this is not age-related macular degeneration, which we know is nearly uh, almost completely uncommon in individuals under 50. And so there's something called dominant drusen, which means we inherit it in a way where we have a 50% likelihood of passing it down to our children. And that has similar features to macular degeneration. And then there are some other varieties. So in those cases, the, the algorithm has become much, much more complex, oftentimes requires genetic testing to make a diagnosis. And that's an entirely different category of disease than the age-related macular degeneration that you and I are currently talking about. Great. So as we kind of move up the, the age ladder uh, from that juvenile uh, question, um, you know, as folks get into their 40s, 50s, 60s, is there anything they can do to either prevent or slow down uh, AMD? So- So that's a great question, and the short answer is we only make recommendations in the current state based on associations. So what I mean by that is there's a large clinical study called the ARED study, which is the study that looked at the utility of the vitamins that we currently take in macular degeneration. And this study looked at associations between eating habits and various parameters and looked at who was likely to progress to more advanced forms of macular degeneration. And what what came out of this is we now recommend patients to eat a lot of leafy green vegetables to minimize their meat intake. And this is the result of some of the features that suggested that there was a lower likelihood of those patients who have a diet high in leafy green vegetables of progressing to more advanced forms of macular degeneration. However, we don't know that there's no current way to entirely prevent macular degeneration. And the only way that we can even potentially slow it down is with the use of potentially some vitamins, which are the vitamins studied in the AREDS formulation, that have been shown to lower the risk of progressing to the wet form of macular degeneration. And that risk reduction is about 25%, which is not a trivial amount. And so kind of on that, that theme, Dr. Modi, 
Is it possible to reverse any vision loss that may have already occurred? So it depends. That's a great question, and I think it depends a lot on how they're initially presenting. So if they present with a slow, progressive decline in vision from the dry form of backlog degeneration, we currently do not have any treatments to either slow that down or to reverse the vision loss. However, some individuals... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, go okay. ahead. So, so some individuals who have the wet form of macular degeneration may notice immediate blurring or distortion of the vision, which are the clinical and or the key signs to suggest that somebody may have progressed to the wet form of macular degeneration. And early treatment with anti-VEGF medications, the medications we were just talking about, certainly can not only slow that risk of losing vision, but can actually significantly improve the vision. And so the key in those circumstances is early detection and early treatment. So for all the listeners here, I certainly wouldn't want to wait. If you were noticing blurry vision, I would call your doctor immediately within 24 to 48 hours to make an appointment, get seen, and get treated. No, that, 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 that's great advice. And, um, you know, you, you know, you've mentioned uh, the, the wet AMD and the dry AMD. We have a few callers that are asking about geographic atrophy. So I was wondering is, if you could explain, is that a third category or is that a synonym for so Geographic atrophy is essentially the end stages or the later stages of the dry form of macular degeneration. Essentially, the atrophy or the loss of tissue, it coalesces and it starts to look like almost like little countries on a map, which is why we call it geographic atrophy. It looks like uh, these like really well-demarcated areas of loss. And that is currently where a lot of our research has been focusing on is to try and slow the progression of that geographic atrophy because ultimately that is what severely compromises central vision in patients with the dry form of macular degeneration. That's good. Uh, we have a caller wondering, um, does AM, can AMD spread from one eye to the other? Well, so that's... so. It doesn't spread in the sense of like a viral infection or something to that measure, but age-related macular degeneration is a bilateral disease process, meaning it affects both eyes. And that can be pretty asymmetric in the beginning, meaning one eye is more advanced than the other eye. But if we truly have a diagnosis of age-related macular degeneration, we will have features popping up in the other eye. Thank you. And I'd like to a couple questions that about you know other medications people might already be taking. Um, we have a, a, a questioner from New York wondering about blood thinners. Does that uh, have any impact positively or negatively on on AMD? Yeah, so that's that's a spectacular question, uh, and a lot of that is we never stop individuals who are on blood thinners. Remember, a lot of the times the patients are on blood thinners because they are life-saving, and there's no evidence to show that the likelihood of bleeding is higher with patients on blood thinners. However, there are certain blood thinners where if the patient were to bleed, the size of the bleeding and the amount of the bleeding could be a fair amount more substantial in patients who are on blood thinners. The key is to realize, however, that the blood thinners are an essential part 
of life preservation. We can frequently end up dealing with the size of the hemorrhage and whatnot by using various treatments, including anti-VEGF medications. Rarely, we even sometimes use surgery. Uh, but I would never encourage a patient to stop blood thinners uh, for the sake of their macular degeneration. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good perspective. And kind of related to that, we have a, a caller from Indiana who um, what, uh, has a question about uh, statins. Um, and wonder if you could just tell our audience what a statin is and why people take it. And is that again, is that helpful or hurtful uh, for vision health? Absolutely. So statins is a class of medication to lower cholesterol. And there's no evidence to support the use of statin therapy for specifically age-related macular degeneration. We are starting to realize, however, that there are patients who have various types of macular degeneration who do have problems with their cholesterol and may have higher likelihood of developing sort of kidney diseases or heart diseases. Uh, but those details are still very much in the preliminary research phases. And so in the current state of affairs, we don't make an advisement on whether or not somebody should be on a statin based on their macular degeneration. That should be driven based on blood tests and indications to lower the cholesterol level from a medical perspective. Well, great. And, you know, again, a couple more questions that are sort of on that connection between one health condition and another. Um, uh, glaucoma and cataracts, do either of those help or hurt uh, treatments for AMD or likelihood of getting AMD? So wondering both, you know, glaucoma and cataracts, and I guess, I guess cataract surgery would also be a part of that, that question. So glaucoma and macular degeneration, there are no strong associations connecting the two. But for many years, doctors always worried about if doing cataract surgery would potentially worsen somebody's macular degeneration or cause them to progress to the wet form of macular degeneration. And we now have some pretty strong evidence that doing cataract surgery does not alter your risk of progressing to more advanced forms of macular degeneration. And in fact, cataract surgery may be one modifiable way to significantly improve the vision in select patients. So, so at this point, if there's a conversation between your retina specialist and your cataract surgeon, and the decision is made to go ahead with cataract surgery, that's frequently something where it can either, one, improve your retina doctor's view of the back of the eye, and potentially, two, improve your vision. And Dr. Modi, as, you know, this is, as we kick off the new year, it's cold in most parts of the country. So we have a couple of questions about weather. I'll kind of combine them. One is a person wondering, does weather, you know, heat and heat or cold or anything, uh, have impact on, on AMD? And then we have a, a question from New Hampshire, not surprisingly, asking about um, the glare from snow. So I was wondering, you know, kind of the relation between weather and, uh, and vision health. Yeah, so those are great questions, and this probably applies to individuals who don't even have macular degeneration. So th there's no worsening of macular degeneration from light conditions, dark or light, and no seasonal variation in which the disease progresses faster or slower. However, winter, as we all know, people who live up in the Northeast or in the northern parts of the United States, it, the sunlight can be particularly oblique, meaning it doesn't rise very high in the, in the sky. And if you take that and you put that on a wet road, then you can get a fair amount of glare where we otherwise don't see that uh, in, the, in the summertime. 
And so there are a couple of ways of using sunglasses, uh, trying to avoid certain times of driving, especially for those patients with comorbid macular degeneration. Um, and uh, to uh, that's probably the best strategy is to use visors, sunglasses, to really help with those very difficult driving conditions. But remember, we're talking now about the most difficult driving conditions, glare uh, and, and a wet road. So I think it's kind of related to that. We have a questioner from Maryland, kind of curious about other parts of the world where the weather might be different or, or the, the, the diet is different. How does the U.S. experience with AMD compared to other countries around the world? So, yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, a great question. And we certainly know there are some variations in who develops macular degeneration. And we're not certain now as to whether or not that's more genetically driven or environmentally driven. In fact, if we look at uh, Asia, for instance, many patients have a different type of macular degeneration called polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy, which is uh, a form of macular degeneration, but it's a little bit different. It's oftentimes maybe a little bit more aggressive than the age-related macular degeneration that we see in the United States. Uh, but we're starting to realize now that we're, this type of macular degeneration we also see commonly in the United States. And there are also individuals where we think that UV exposure may be linked to um, um, changes in the macula, especially in the lens, causing cataract formation. But the demographics of individuals around the equator typically have not correlated well with patients who are at higher risk for developing macular degeneration. No, thank, thank you. Um, a couple of callers have been asking, of, sending us questions about this, the, the duration of, of the injections that you talked about. Is that something that, that a person gets can get, you know, in perpetuity, or is there a certain number of years? Is there a point where which this would yeah. would stop? So everybody, we, you know, we sort of lump macular degeneration and the wet form of macular degeneration in this case into one entity. But every patient is remarkably different. And so some individuals may just get one, two, three injections, and that may be it. They may never need another injection ever again. Uh, but we know that that's the minority of individuals, and the majority of individuals actually require a fair amount of therapy. And we now have patients who've been receiving injections essentially since 2004 with continuous therapy. And a question that I get for some patients who've had a lot of injections is, is there damage from repeat injections uh, into the eye? And we now have patients who've done very, very well with 150 injections in the eye. So this is a very, very well-tolerated treatment. And we frequently know that patients who, on average, who get the most number of injections, somewhere around seven to nine injections a year, are frequently the ones, on average, who end up doing the best in terms of preserving their long-term vision. So we have a couple of questions, Dr. Modi, about stem cells. You know, people hear, you read about stem cell uh, treatments for, for diseases. Is that something that is applicable for, for AMD? Like, are there, is there research going on in stem cells, or are there approved stem cell treatments uh, in, in this field? So there's certainly stem cell therapy going on for the dry form of macular degeneration. 
And uh, at, at the moment, this is all experimental and in early phases of development. So, so really, it's really important for patients to realize that these are very well-structured studies that are designed for number one safety in mind. And I'd like to say that around the United States, unfortunately, there are what we call, quote-unquote, stem cell clinics where patients are actually paying out of pocket to receive stem cell therapy. And this is a completely unjustified treatment where patients have lost vision. So just remember, when you're enrolling in a clinical trial, you should never have an out-of-pocket fee. You should never pay for stem cell therapy. These are early trials in a select number of academic institutions around the United States that are doing this in a safe and controlled fashion. So we get very excited when we hear the word stem cells and we want to jump into the clinical trials, but we have to realize that there are sometimes in the unknown there can be some downsides to this. So as we embark on stem cell therapy, we have to do this in a very safe and controlled fashion. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I know clinical trials is a, you know, a big topic unto itself. And um, so Dr. Murray, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned uh, how you know, the, the, the more patients can adhere to, to these treatments, the better off they are. It, um, it can sound like a lot. Um, do you have advice for, for patients and caregivers on how they can... Um, you know, be, you know, continue yeah. continue adherence for 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 years on end. Well, I think a, a big part of this is expectations. You know, and what I mean by that is, uh, if you come into the clinic expecting your injection and then uh, going home, that expectation is uh, going to allow you some degree of clarity in terms of knowing what you're in for for that day. And so a lot of times, all of the treatments that are currently ongoing, for instance, the approval of borelicizumab was designed to try and extend the interval between treatments. So we certainly realize there's a huge burden of disease getting injections every four, six, even eight weeks. And the goal of these treatments is to try and extend patients out even further, 10 and 12 weeks. And there are some studies that are ongoing looking at even doing implants in the eye to really try and increase that interval where the medication, the anti-VEGF medication, gets slowly released over several months. And that can decrease the burden of these repeated injections. So we understand as retina specialists and as vision scientists that there is a huge burden of disease, and that's what we're currently working on to try and lower. Yeah, you know, when you talk about the, the conversations and the expectations between a, uh, you know, patients and their families and, and clinicians, just sort of a big picture question: How can someone make a visit to an eye doctor, um, you know, go as well as possible? Do you have any tips for, for I guess, for both both the the, the physician and the patient uh, side of the coin? Like, what what makes it go the best? Well, let's let's start from the case of macular degeneration, okay? We'll use that as the example. So many times you're going to be going to your general ophthalmologist or one of the optometrists in the area that will make a diagnosis or see something unusual that and then refer you to a retina specialist. And in that window of time, having a little bit of understanding about what it is that they were talking about, writing down a set of questions so that we don't forget it when the retina doctor is speaking to you, can 
oftentimes result in a very productive visit. And at any point, if there are any questions or any concerns about the treatment, about the diagnosis, about the prognosis, these are all things where it's really important to communicate those uncertainties to your retina provider so that you can have a meaningful conversation and get the clarity that you're hoping for. That's great. And Dr. Modi, as we as we conclude today, uh, you've just you know uh, given us a lot of fantastic points, and and you've been very very uh, helpful and easy to follow. And uh, because you're a sixth generation ophthalmologist, I I wanted to ask you you know sort of conclude some sort of big picture advice, like maybe what have you learned or observed in your career? Is there a common piece of advice you give to your patients, or is there a common miss? Is there a myth that you'd like to to correct or you know, as we start the year 2020, a very auspicious uh, year for vision health, is there something that we as individuals or country can do better? So a lot of different questions there. Do you can just pick pick one yeah. or, you know, some, some so sort of big picture I, thoughts? Yeah, of you know the what what have I learned in my career? I think that's that's a that's a tough question, and I'll say that uh, as as much as doctors think they know, there's always more to learn, and I think we're constantly learning more and more about disease states, and uh, that hopefully can translate to significantly improved patient outcomes. And part of this, I'd also like to say, is it's a dialogue that we have between patients and and doctors. And every patient interaction is a little bit different. And the way in which we treat patients can oftentimes be shaped through that mechanism. And so if I had to provide a piece of advice to patients, I'd say, uh, always try to do your best to be informed about what's going on with your eyes, what is the treatment plan that has been enacted? And then what's the sort of, what's the goal? What's the six-month goal? What's the one-year goal? What's the five-year goal? And those are things that can add some clarity to what you're going through and uh, also make it a little bit more easy to follow what the retina doctor is saying in clinic. That's a great advice about the, uh, the patients themselves having goals and, and clearly are articulating that. So that, that's wonderful. So. Over the next uh, couple weeks, we'll be posting an audio recording on the web of today at brightfocus.org, as well as a written transcript uh, on our website. We uh, take the audio files and put them on iTunes and SoundCloud, so these are there for, uh, for, for upcoming use. Our Bright Focus chat continues uh, next month, February 26th, where we will um, uh, continue to explore a lot of, these, a lot of the topics uh, that, that we began today about about uh, uh, treatment and diagnosis and, and caregiving. So uh, uh, please return, uh, if possible, February 26th to, to continue this conversation. So Dr. Modi, on behalf of, of uh, today's listeners and the Bright Focus Foundation, uh, I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, uh, we'd love to have you back on a future Bright Focus chat. Well, thank you for having me, and it was a pleasure being here. All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, and we'll, we will uh, reconvene February 26th. Thanks. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.